This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. More than 3,000 miles south of San Francisco, there's a cluster of villages in Honduras where, around every corner, there are references to San Francisco and the Bay Area. So we have been on a dirt road now for about an hour. We just passed by a young woman, maybe an 18, 19-year-old girl with a uh, brand new warrior shirt on, bright yellow. That's Chronicle reporter Megan Cassidy, who was touring the municipality of San Ignacio back in November. We're not getting service here, so we have to ask people around uh, for the people that we're looking for. Megan spent 18 months looking into the connection between San Francisco and this region of Honduras with Chronicle photographer Gabrielle Lurie. I think it may have been Megan that pointed out to me on a moto taxi, like, look, there's a San Francisco bumper sticker. And as we kept driving through the villages, we just kept seeing more San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. What they discovered was stunning. These Honduran villages were the birthplaces of many drug dealers in San Francisco. Today on Fifth Emission, an exclusive investigation into the other side of the city's drug crisis that we hear about so often. Who are the people dealing deadly drugs on San Francisco's streets and how did they end up here? You can read it online now at sfchronicle.com slash Honduras. Megan Cassidy and Gabrielle Lurie will share their reporting from the Syria Valley of Honduras, a three-hour drive from the country's capital where new construction is booming. Churches there are getting renovated, luxurious houses are going up, even as the rest of the town remains mostly rural and quiet. There are so few people in the streets and there are stores all around that are closed. And it just it really kind of has this ghost town feel, except for there's construction everywhere, which is kind of fascinating. And the hardware store there is the busiest spot in town. How did this region become connected to San Francisco and its drug trade? We'd see Warriors T-shirts and hats and socks, and it just became very clear that the connection between San Francisco and these tiny villages was astounding. Gabrielle Lurie and Megan Cassidy share their 18-month investigation to shed light on the supply side of the drug epidemic that has killed more than 2,200 people in San Francisco since the start of 2020. Their reporting involved hundreds of hours spent in the open-air drug markets in the Tenderloin and Soma and traveling on the rural roads in the hometowns of many of San Francisco's drug dealers. Gabrielle and I went to visit somebody that she had known in the Tenderloin, a longtime drug dealer there, went to go visit him. And his neighborhood is filled with really large houses and many of them with San Francisco logos on them from the 49ers, some with the Warriors. There were some that have references to the Golden Gate Bridge. And so just our our first time in 
this village called El Pedernal, we were just we were just stunned. Many people who hail from these villages have left for the United States, and enough of them end up in San Francisco that they sometimes recognize each other on the street. Like many immigrants, they send money back home to support their families. Most Honduran immigrants in the Bay Area work legitimate jobs, but some are earning hundreds of thousands of dollars by selling drugs. The relationship between San Francisco and these villages is complex. This was an investigation that not only involved risky reporting trips, but also reviewing thousands of court and police documents to establish the link between Honduras and the Bay Area. I started my conversation with the reporting team by asking Megan Cassidy how they even got the idea for the story. I have to give that credit completely to Emilio, our editor-in-chief. When he first started on the job, he was asking, you know, what kind of big swing stories that I was looking into. And he asked, well, what about Honduran drug dealers? And I said, what about them? And he said, well, why are they all Honduran? And I said, I don't know that they are. I don't know if everybody, anybody's ever looked into that. And then also kind of around the same time, there was this growing claim that San Francisco drug dealers who were Honduran were being trafficked. That assertion was made by some public defenders and probably most, most famously by Chesa Boudin, the former district attorney. That then was also very strongly refuted by, by other people who say that they're not trafficked. But what was striking is, is that debate was so much at the forefront of San Francisco politics. But yet when you start talking to people about it, nobody really knew anything about it. People were making some really broad statements. I saw a, a topic that was very germane to San Francisco, but which was really poorly understood. And then Gabrielle, what about for you? You know, you've covered the drug user side of what's happening with the San Francisco crisis, and you've even won Pulitzer finalist recognition for it. Why was this particular story compelling to you? I have covered the drug crisis for a long time, and I have always wanted to cover the dealer side, but I didn't know how, where to begin. And I do think that the drug users and the drug dealers have a very symbiotic relationship there's actually less of a separation between them than you'd think. They often spend a lot of time together. They work together. They know a lot about each other. Some of the users were able to give us a lot of information about how things work, information that we were later able to confirm. So, you know, covering one side of it, I always wanted to cover the other side and I didn't quite know how. And so when Emilio, our editor-in-chief, came up to me and he said, can you find a drug dealer that we can go to Honduras with? <laughs> I laughed and I went home completely overwhelmed. Like, how am I supposed to do this? And I just sort of tapped into my sources, people that I've known over time. It wasn't easy. We had roadblocks. We had many people who thought we were police officers, people that wanted us to strip down so that they could make sure we didn't have wires. So people wanted to talk, but they weren't necessarily trusting. So it took a while to find someone to kind of open that door for us. 
Megan, this investigation points out that hundreds of Honduran migrants have faced drug charges in San Francisco and that a high concentration of dealers come from this region in Honduras, the Syria Valley. How are you able to confirm that this connection was actually true? After Gabrielle and I first went to El Pedernal and then we got back to our hotel room, I looked at a list of dealers that I had started making based on court records. Most of the time they don't have a like city of origin or anything. Some of them do. And we started seeing these towns that we had seen that day. So El Pedernal kept popping up. Orica, which is another village nearby. El Porvenir, which is both a town and the municipality where a lot of these villages are. And then, of course, you know, the San Francisco insignia was a big clue. The insignia and just the new money that we were seeing is so different than the rest of the area around Honduras and and even in the big cities. And so we really started uh, just asking people then, what town are you from? And we just started seeing more and more of the same. One of the dealers said to us, we're kind of famous from that area. You know, when we asked, well, why aren't other people from Honduras coming? And they said, well, they just don't know. It wasn't a secret. You know, the town is very open about where they're going and why. Now, Gabrielle, speaking of, you know, people coming to San Francisco to make a living in this way, people who sell drugs, according to the reporting, say that they can make as much as $350,000 a year for their involvement in this local drug operation. And there's also others who struggle to make a living in the Bay Area. Drug dealers you spoke to talked about living in fear of violence from either customers or their bosses. What exactly is going on in the villages of the Syria Valley that compels people to come to San Francisco to sell drugs? There's a lot of different reasons why people come. Some people originally go to Atlanta and then they end up here. Some people come here for legal work and then they run into a friend from their town who says, hey, maybe you should do this. It's much easier. Some people come intentionally to sell drugs. Overall, people come to make money because there's not a lot of job opportunity in the Syria Valley. Coming to the U.S. to send money home is the way that their economy is supported. You go there and they'll tell you that pretty much someone from each household is in the States. So for some context on this region, it was hit really hard when a U.S. mining operation that was later bought by a Canadian operation, came into the area offering job opportunities and then actually ended up polluting the water to the point where people were getting sick, where the farmland was ravaged and left them with even fewer opportunities than they had. So this forced people to leave the town looking for better economic opportunities. Megan, it's also important to Note that a majority of Honduran immigrants in San Francisco work legally, but that's not always easy, right? What kind of hurdles do some migrants face in obtaining legal jobs here? There's a few things that are significant for not just uh, Honduran migrants, but, but for many. You know, the language barrier is obviously huge. 
most of them have no idea how to get immigration papers or or to find uh, a community group or an immigration attorney maybe who could help you do those things. When faced with the path of least resistance and you need to make rent, you need to send money home, you need to have food. I think that a lot of people just turn to the thing that is that is the easiest. That's the infrastructure that's already been set up. Public defenders in San Francisco have argued that Honduran drug dealers in San Francisco are being trafficked and forced to sell drugs under the threat of violence. How did the Chronicle interrogate that claim? Reporters Megan Cassidy and Gabrielle Lurie will share what they discovered after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Chronicle reporter Megan Cassidy and photographer Gabrielle Lurie spent 18 months reporting on drug dealers in San Francisco who come from Honduras. Last year, San Francisco Mayor London Breed came under fire when she said during an interview with KQED that many people dealing fentanyl in San Francisco come from Honduras. There are, unfortunately, a lot of people who um, come from a particular country, in Hondur- come from Honduras, And a lot of the people who are dealing drugs happen to be of that ethnicity. Um, And when a lot of the arrests have been made for people breaking the law, you have the public defender's office and staff from the public defender's office who are using the law to say you're racial profiling. And it's nothing racial profile about this. It's, It's we all know it. It's the reality. It's what you see. Latino groups and others called Breed's comments xenophobic and racist. Breed later apologized, saying that she failed to explain, quote, the incredibly complex situation in our city and in Central America. Megan Cassidy, knowing this context and the public backlash that Breed faced, how did you approach this reporting to avoid stereotypes about Hondurans and the larger Latino community? Racial sensitivities and context were always at the forefront of our minds when when reporting on this story. And so what we did to try to make sure that we weren't making any stereotypes is really just first off confirm this assumption that there are a lot of Hondurans here and that have made the choice to sell drugs one reason or another. And that took a lot of heavy lifting with data. And that's something that we did throughout the reporting, just try to collect data on cases, federal, local, police, diversion, homeless shelters. And and it's not easy because a lot of that data isn't public. We talked to 25 different people for this story who were Honduran migrants who either currently do or formerly sold drugs in San Francisco. And I think to avoid stereotypes, you let people speak for themselves. 
And that's why we tried to talk to so many people and get just a range of experiences and let that show through our story. I would echo Megan's statement, which is just that you let the people that you meet tell you the story. When you go in with a a preconceived idea, it's usually wrong. And so we just let people tell us where they're from, why they came. And I think it's important not to shy away from the facts once you get them. I think once we can get to that, we can start being nuanced and talk about the reasons why and maybe offer some sort of solutions. To really get into this reporting, Gabrielle, this involved a lot of different kinds of reporting trips, including visiting the drug markets on the streets of San Francisco during the day and the night. And in San Francisco, I understand that you both chose not to be accompanied by security during that reporting. But Gabrielle, what about in Honduras? How did you consider your safety especially when this topic is so sensitive? The first trip we had a tour guide, you know, who helped us with translating. We also had security with us. So we had two people kind of at all times keeping an eye. The second time we actually went without security. You know, sometimes less is more. We're already sticking out a lot because we're two white women in a rural area that doesn't have a lot of visitors. The more of an entourage you have, the more alarming it is. You know, what are they doing? Why are there people protecting them? You know, I photographed from the car a lot of times to keep a low profile. Everything we did was very calculated. The week before we got there, the the town of El Pedernal had just waged this battle with a, a group of gangs who had tried to begin extorting people there. So there was a lot of violence. The military police had to be called in. And so... The, the town was really on edge and very suspect of visitors. The unofficial rule there is to have your car windows rolled down at all times. Gabrielle and I were riding in the car with our source, who is a San Francisco drug dealer, to our translator and security guard were behind us. It was very dusty, rolled up their windows for a few minutes, and there was a, a guy on a motorcycle who pulled up to them while they were driving and flashed a gun on his waistband and yelled at them to roll down the window, then rode his motorcycle up to us, to the car we were in, and said, uh, hey, tell your friends, got to roll down the window. We didn't witness any violence, but there was just a lot of tension in the air, both the times that we went. Megan, earlier this year, you came on Fifth Mission, and we discussed how public defenders have been arguing As you mentioned, that many street-level drug dealers from Honduras are being trafficked and forced to sell drugs under the fear of violence from cartels or coyotes that help them cross the border. After doing this reporting, how does that compare to what you learned? It's still a really difficult question to answer with a lot of certainty. We talked to three people out of the 25 who said that they were forced or defrauded in some way to sell drugs here or or threatened and their families were threatened. The thing that that was really difficult to report on was that there is not a lot of physical evidence to back that up. What I think what the public defenders would say is that like this is such a secretive industry. There's so much at risk that people, they don't want to name names. There's so much at stake that 
they will just not talk to you anymore. I think that there is a, a certain degree of fear that goes along with drug dealing, a certain amount of violence that goes along with drug dealing. But trafficking is a legal term that is difficult at times to prove or disprove in an illicit industry. We talked to many, many people who said that they were not forced to do it. There were several people who said, uh, basically, my circumstances forced me to, and it was the path of least resistance. And I needed to pay rent, didn't have a job, don't have a lot of education. And so I, I did it and I feel bad about it. I don't want to do it. And then there are other people who do want to do it. There's one of our sources has been in San Francisco on and off since 2004. And he spoke about being a kid and seeing the money coming in from San Francisco. And what came with it was social status and girls and cars. And everybody wanted that. What I heard more of was violence at the border, violence getting here. Those were the fears and the real fears that we heard over and over again was, I was held ransom at the border. Everything was taken from me at the border. Getting to San Francisco is a feat. And that's actually part of why some of the houses are adorned with San Francisco logos is because just getting here is tough. And then making it here is even tougher. So there's this pride in... I made it all the way there and I made enough money to build a house. So our conversation is only really scratching the surface of what your investigation reveals about the local drug trade in San Francisco and its connection to the Syria Valley region of Honduras. Gabrielle, what can listeners expect to read and discover from the full story online? The investigation starts with the hometown of San Francisco's drug dealers, but then it opens up into the open-air drug market, how it works, where the drugs are coming from. And then we get the perspective of a mom who was working legally, who then during COVID became involved on a very high level in drug trafficking. And from there, we kind of leave you with the original man from the village of El Pedernal who came here what his experience was like arriving here in the 90s and how people were influenced by him. I think that you can expect to be introduced to a group of people who are playing a large role in the city that we really haven't heard from before. You know, the fentanyl epidemic, the overdose crisis is an issue that is so problematic in San Francisco right now. And we really felt that it was important to examine all sides of it. There will be no two perspectives from people who, who read this that will think exactly the same thing. And that's completely fine. What we want to do is just really better inform conversation that is hugely important to the city right now. Megan, Gabrielle, I know this story was such a big undertaking. Congrats to you both on completing it and publishing it. I appreciate you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Megan Cassidy covers crime and public safety for The Chronicle, and Gabrielle Lurie is a staff photographer. Don't miss their extensive multi-part investigation into San Francisco's drug trade and its connection to Honduras online. It's at sfchronicle.com slash Honduras. You'll learn how the city's open-air drug dealers work and meet two former Honduran dealers who share their paths to the local drug trade. 
Included in the investigation is a piece on why it's so difficult to solve the city's drug crisis, as well as a note from Chronicle Editor-in-Chief Emilio Garcia Ruiz, who shares his motivation for the project. Big thank you to Laura Wenis and Sarah Feldberg for their help in producing this episode, to Gary Baca for editing, and thank you for listening. <laughs> 